You are so worthy of our adoration, of our worship, of our attention, of our lives as living sacrifices for you, Lord. We just thank you so much for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that draws us into that relationship with you, Lord. We thank you for the power of your word, Lord, that your word says that sanctifies in truth, your word is truth, and that your word never returns void. And so we thank you so much for the gift of this morning, and we thank you that you go before us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. And I didn't have to turn it on, and so I just made an assumption. We all know that that's not a good idea. All right, good morning. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the team here at Sarah Bible. I want to welcome you. If you are new here, I want to welcome you again. And uh, if you are new and you have a junior high student, uh, just so you know, in case you don't, uh, junior high does meet during second service, and that's actually next door. You can actually go outside down the ramp, and junior high does meet there. You are also welcome to stay here. Uh, as well as Children's Church, that's also next door. We have a family room over here in this corner. It's for families. And we have a cry room. Hey, guys, that's normally not open. It's kind of, yeah, hi. Okay, all right. So all of that is over there. I want to say hello. And if you, uh, one more time, if you are new, we have a gift for you in the back. Um, when I say back, I mean outside in the foyer. So you are welcome to grab that now, or you can wait till after the service. That's fine, too. Um, I also, before Pastor Jesse comes up and we get in the Haggai, I just want to let you know about a couple things going on here. Uh, the first one is bingo. If you haven't heard, we have bingo in a couple of weeks. All right? So very, very important. This event is for all, and it's next, well, I don't know. It's in a couple weeks. April 1st. So we are having bingo uh, in a couple weeks, and we also are having, I wrote it down. Nope, that was it for the events, okay? <laughs> so, bingo. All right, so moving on. If you haven't, if you have, have noticed, there's clothing outside and other items. Uh, we are not having a sale. They are our lost and found, and they have been around for a while. And I would like them to be found and taken home and never brought back here. So we have lots of clothing. There's actually a lot of Bibles out there, and of course, our little coffee mugs that everyone carries around. And so I encourage you to look through it. If you feel like you left something here at some point, we are trying to cleanse the area and the church um, and prep for Easter and all that. And if you see something you like, you may also take it. <laughs> I'm giving you permission because it's been around. So lots of stuff has been around. People have had the opportunity to come back. If they haven't taken the opportunity, it's, they're not coming back. It's too late. All right, so that lost and found is out there for you. Um, also, speaking of uh, tumblers or coffee mugs, uh, you may have noticed that we have Sierra Bible tumblers uh, in the front. They are for sale. And just uh, I just wanted to point them out. We are not trying to have a store here or anything like that. Uh, we are just trying to continue to get the word out that Sierra Bible is here and that we exist. And like all of you who are, I'm sure, at the very corner of all your seats have some thermos of some kind. Uh, you know, you carry that around because you like it and because uh, you like where you got it, whether that's coffee bar or drink coffee, do stuff or hydro flask, and you're basically communicating to everywhere you go that I like this place. And so we want you to do that too with Sierra Bible, and that's really what they're for, to remind people that we are part of the community and that we are here. Uh, and so the last but not least, if you are a very hospitable person, I know all of you are, but if you have the extra gift of hospitality, we are looking for greeters. These are people out front, and they're welcoming you in, and we're just looking for people to be a part of that ministry. So if that's you, if you feel like, I've always wanted to do that, <laughs> then please come talk to me, and we want to fill those spots. All right, let's get going with Pastor Jesse. I saw Pastor Wayne trying on some clothes out there after the first service. So if you're missing something, Wayne has it. 
Well, good morning. As Amy said, my name is Jesse, and I'm the, one of the pastors here. We're in Haggai, so if you uh, have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Haggai. If you don't have a Bible, uh, one of my guys in the back there would, would love to hand you one. Jamie, would you help me out? And uh, I, I miss an, Oh, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And just keep your hand up. And um, Mavis is back. That's right. Yeah. Mavis, uh, Mavis was uh, at a hip-hop concert, right? And you broke your ankle. And um, she's been out for a while. But this, uh, I, we prayed for his elders this morning because this is her first week back home after several weeks. And I mentioned to the elders, I said, I almost guarantee you she's going to come back to, she'll be at church today. And she is. So it's good to have you. Thank you for reminding me, Jamie. Um, okay. <clears throat> so if you haven't been here, we have taken several weeks to kind of dive into this book uh, this little minor prophet, it's called minor because it's not because it's a minor prophet, because it's smaller. That's all that means is that it's a smaller book. Uh, yet there's some big implications in this book. If you remember, it ties into Jeremiah, ties into Ezra, uh, even kind of pushes us towards the book of Nehemiah. So it's an important book. And what has happened at this time, if you haven't been here, uh, just to remind you, as well as if you have been here, uh, the God's people have kind of rebelled against God. And the result of that is that they have ended up in captivity in Babylon and literally enslaved, taken from their home in Jerusalem, dragged upward to Babylon for 70 years. Upon that year of 70, uh, around 70 years, the Persian Empire comes in, takes over the Babylonian Empire, and then King Cyrus of the Persians allows the Jews to go back, to go back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to their hometown with the, the job, the sole purpose of rebuilding the temple, right? Because the Babylonians had utterly destroyed the glory of Solomon's temple. And so Cyrus figured, hey, better, it's better to, to bless people that they'll follow you rather than to keep them in prison. So he gives them a stimulus check, essentially, sends them down to Jerusalem, and the people wait 16 years before building it. They delay. The stimulus check wasn't as big as they thought, it was going to be, the gas prices went up, and they began to just kind of sit back. And if you remember in chapter one, they're just focused on building their own homes, their own paneled houses. That word paneled uh, literally is the same words that are used for when the temple was being built. Uh, and Haggai is sent by God. He speaks to Zerubbabel and, and Joshua or Joshua, the priest, and he says, listen, it's time for us to get to work. We can't be lazy, and there's this continual emphatic message, get to work, get to work, don't sit on your laurels, but get back into building the temple. I'm with you, now's the time. And so what they do, they begin the process, they start building. Where we're at right now in chapter two, the foundation of the temple has been laid, and it seems as if they need another encouragement, another uh, message, this is actually the fourth message, and we know the specific dates. This is December 18th, 520 AD. And so if you would, if you're uh, new with Seer Bible, we love God's word so much that we like to stand, not for just traditional sake, but just to position our hearts, our minds for the reading of scripture. Would you stand with me as we read our section this morning from Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. And here's your December 18th date. It's worded this way. Again, chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, Darius is the king that came after Cyrus. Again, right, it's been 16 years. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with the fold of, if it touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And with so every work of their hands and what they offer is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to wine, a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. 
I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I'll bless you. And Lord, this is what we need, your blessing upon us this morning, for without it, we're hopeless. Speak to us now from your holy word. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to ask you a weird question. Are you ready? No? (laughs) You don't have to answer it. Please don't. But here's the question. How often do you bathe? Hopefully it was this morning. For the blessing of all of us, hopefully it was this morning. If it wasn't, that's okay. We'll love you anyway. The reason I ask the question is because ultimately what has occurred, what is happening in this particular passage, is somewhere between hearing the word of God spoken by Haggai, they start to begin the work. And they start to lay the foundation. That's why in the text it says they laid stone upon stone. And the foundation has been laid. And what is occurring at this point now is the work has become, the work of their hands specifically, remember this is something that keeps reoccurring in Haggai, do the work, do the work, do the work, specifically with your hands. And now they are doing the work, which arises now a new problem, that they start to believe that the work of their hands is that which is going to set them apart, that's going to make them holy. And so now you got two questions that Haggai asks the priest specifically. Question number one, if you have holy meat, in your pocket, which now is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, okay? If you have holy meat in your pocket or in your satchel, and that holy meat touches anything else in your pocket, does that thing then become holy? And what he's talking of specifically is meat that was prayed over by the priests to be offered to God. And upon praying over that meat and offering it to God, it then became holy meat, Now, holy, by definition, if you're a note taker, holiness literally means cleanliness. Remember I asked the question, how often do you bathe? Holiness means cleanliness. Now, we've seen multiple times in the text that God is holy. He is set apart. And that's literally what holiness means. It it means to be torn apart from or to be set apart from that which is unclean. Uh, Another way to put it is holiness is healthiness. Or holiness is happiness. Psalm 1611 literally states that in his holy presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So this idea of being set apart is being mentioned in this text. And he's saying, okay, if you have this holy meat, you have this holy thing, and this holy thing touches other things, does it become holy? And the answer is an emphatic no. The priests say, absolutely not. That's not the case. And then Haggai goes back and he starts talking about the Levitical law. And he says, okay, now on the other hand, if you touch a dead thing and then you touch something else, is it unclean? And the answer is yes. And what he's stating in this particular passage is holiness spreads differently than unholiness. Cleanliness spreads differently than uncleanliness. When Allie and I purchased our our house in Sierra Meadows, the previous owners decided to paint the house in all white. And not only all white, but a matte type of finish white. And and if you know anything about paint, which I didn't totally know this until after owning the house, that that particular kind of white paint attracts dirt incredibly fast, very rapidly. And it wasn't long before living in the house in our stairwell that you could literally see where the kids rubbed their hands as they walked up the stairs and down the stairs. And no matter how much I prayed, no matter how much we told our kids to bathe, if they bathed and then they took their hands on the wall, did the wall become clean? No, that's essentially what he's saying. However, if my kids go outside, like one of my children loves to do, and doesn't wear his shoes like he did yesterday, And if you know what yesterday was like, right? A little bit of moisture, a little bit of dryness. It makes for a perfect opportunity to make your feet disgusting. 
And that's exactly what my son did. Went outside, ran around, came in, started, started leaning over on the, on the coffee table, kicked his feet up, and my wife and I just about vomited. We told him, get in the shower now and clean your hobbit feet. Do it now, right? So we understand what he's essentially saying here, this reality that one cannot become clean unless one has actually been clean, but that one who is clean cannot make something else unclean. Essentially, again, holy meat does not make anything else holy. Holy things don't make people holy. And he likens the people to this. He says, my people are like this. This is what they're like. They've been set apart, and they think because they're set apart that everything they touch is actually going to be clean. They, they think because they're my people that they're going to actually spread this goodness of God. But the reality is, is what they're doing is they're, they're literally doing the work and they think that doing the work of building the temple, the act of building the temple is going to make them clean. They're missing the ultimate message that God wants to share with his church. If you remember, there's a place in the New Testament. Jesus encounters the Pharisees on multiple occasions. We know this. And if you remember the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, these were God's supposed men at the time of Jesus' appearing. And literally, these men would state that they were holy, and, and they would show their holiness by what they wore, by how they talked. They would pray out in the open. They would do all of the godly things that you think were godly, and they were knowledgeable of God's word. They knew the Old Testament, and they knew the Pentateuch. And they used the Pentateuch in the Old Testament to rule over other people in a way which was unhealthy. So as Jesus encounters these men, what does he say to the religious men, the people who are supposed to be reflecting the goodness of Christ? Woe to you in Matthew chapter 23. It's an indictment of judgment. Woe to you. Why? Specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead people's bones. You're full of death. Remember again, Levitical law, you touch that which is deadly, you too will become death. You will become unclean. And he says the reality is, is you've got these people who are walking around acting like doing all of the religious things and God's judgment to them is you actually know nothing about the heart of God. You actually know nothing about the true church. The encouragement that he's trying to share with us when he says this is that holy work, holy acts, spiritual work, spiritual acts apart from the presence of God cannot cleanse you. The title of the message this morning is, is literally clean up your life. How does one clean up their life? And what does it mean to clean up one's life? What it means is that hopefully when you've been in a relationship with Christ, your life looks radically different today than it did yesterday. We were having a, uh, a little get-together for John Amon. Some of you may not know, but John and Sam, Sam Amon are here with us this morning. And, <clears throat> ooh, hey, oh. and uh, John was our youth pastor before Caleb, and we were at a party, and we were sitting down eating together up in Tall Donner at another uh, one of our church members' house. And, and, uh, and Courtney, who's been part of our youth group, part of our church for a long time, just was going around the room and asking the question, you know, how would you quickly explain the gospel? And, and so we started talking about the implications of the gospel, and one of uh, the individuals shared some really deep things I'll get to in a moment, but as we were sharing, we were talking about the nuance of, of how God literally changes people's lives, that things actually change. And, and I, I, we were telling a story, Ben Lynn was telling a story of, of when he and I were down in Reno, and he was purchasing some ammo cans down in Reno, like literally a whole crate of them, which tell, if you know Ben, you know, like totally makes sense. And... Um, <laughs> And we're down there, and, and I grabbed this little black vial with, it, it's tinted kind of uh, dark, and it's got a little black cap, and I, I look at it, and I kind of giggle, and Ben goes, why are you laughing? And I was like, this vial, man, it just brings up some memories. And he goes, yeah, me too, my dad, my dad used to use that vial when we'd go gold panning, and we'd put flakes of gold in there to store our gold, and I started laughing even more, so he says, why are you laughing? He's like, because my dad used it for something entirely different. <laughs> Some of you don't know exactly what that is, and that's a good thing. And after my father got saved, and he got rid of the drugs, and he got rid of the pornography, and he got rid of all of those different things, the life looked radically different, right? There was real life in him, 
But then there are those of us who get rid of the drugs and we go to church and we do all the, the things that we think we should do thinking it's going to make us clean. Remember, cleanliness, holiness is happiness. So you have a whole group of people who come to church and they tithe and they give and they serve and they think if I do these holy acts, I'll become holy. And the message of Haggai is, no, those acts mean nothing apart from me. In fact, even in the Old Testament, it's reminded to us multiple times that God cares more about the heart than the actual acts, the actual work of the hands. Again, the people think, if I work with my hands, if I do these holy things, I'll be holy. This is what God's saying to us, that we can get relationship back with God if I just do the right things. And so in Samuel, it said that Samuel, the Lord delights in burnt, does not, I'm sorry, has the Lord as great a delight in, in burnt offerings. I hate it when I stutter like that. Me and Moses have a couple things in common here. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now he's making a connection of the heart between the heart and the action of sacrifice itself. Hosea, which is a, another great book to study if you ever have time on your own. I desire steadfast love, he says, and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Essentially saying, he, he, he cares about the heart more than the work of the hands. So the people are to do the work. They're to build the temple. That's important work. It needs to be done. But if they think that that's somehow going to usher in God's presence and make them holy and make them happy, they're wrong. Now, the contrast of that, on one side, holiness doesn't spread the same way unholiness does. What about unholiness and unhappiness? Well, chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, share with us that sin is contagious and defilement spreads in a way that holiness does not. Here's one way to say it. It's easier to fall into sin than it is to fall into righteousness. It's easier to fall into sin than to fall into unrighteousness. Now, by the get-go, we have to state one of the most unpopular messages of the Bible that really no one of the secular age wants to deal with or confess that is true. And that is that all of us from birth are stained and unclean by Adam's sin. You don't need to do anything to fall into sin. David himself said that my mother conceived me in iniquity. What this means is, unless you have been born again of Christ... You've only been born of the flesh. And if you've only been born of the flesh, then you walk in your flesh. You walk in your sin and in your defilement. And the message of Haggai is whatever you touch, whatever you do keeps getting dirty and it keeps spreading and it keeps spreading and it keeps spreading. Right? The, the, <clears throat> Jeremiah 17, 9 says this about the heart, that it's deceitful and it's wicked above all things. It's desperately sick and no one can understand it. Some of you don't think that that's very popular, but I just would encourage you to try an experiment. I, I, I'm speaking hypothetically. Please don't do this. But if you take two two-year-olds and you put them in one crib with one toy, what do you think they're going to do? Now, I actually asked this question to someone one time, and they said, oh, they'd share. And I said, you don't have kids, do you? <laughs> right? It's inevitable. You put two children in there. You don't have to teach them anything. One of them will take the toy, and it will not share. He will not share it. She will not share it. And not only will he not share it, at some point, I almost guarantee, one child will end up hitting the other child with said toy. Anyone who's ever had children knows you never had to teach your kids how to lie. No one ever educates their kids in that. No one ever educates their kids in how to be selfish or to have a bad attitude or how not to share. That is a natural result of our uncleanliness that we have received because of the sin of Adam. It spreads. And wherever you go, whatever you do, without Christ's intervention, it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. A few verses by way of reminder of this, Galatians chapter 5. If you remember the book, in Galatians, literally, the people in Galatia, they'd receive the gospel, the simplicity of it. I'm saved by grace alone and faith alone and Jesus alone. And then all of a sudden, these guys came into the church and they began to teach in order to be clean, in order to be really saved. It wasn't sufficient to be saved by grace alone, God's goodness, 
But you had to start doing other things, circumcision and some of the other Jewish traditions. And Paul says to them, he says, okay, listen, I want to know who's hindering you, who's teaching you this false gospel that is ruining your faith with relationship with, in relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he adds to this and he says, this isn't from God. That's not a message from Christ. That's not the biblical message of salvation. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It just takes a little bit. What essentially the reason Paul wrote Galatians is the church started out so well and was thriving and then people came in and started saying, you've got to do it this way. You've got to do it that way. If you're not doing it this way, you're not a true church. And Paul is saying, you're going to kill your church. That's one way that you could ruin a church by putting the law on people that God never intended, a yoke on people that God never intended. And then in Proverbs, it tells us this book of wisdom Don't make friendship with a man with anger, lest you get entrapped in a snare and you become like that man. Maybe this will work for us in our day and age when when literally what God is saying again with Haggai, that, that unholiness spreads God's message here to some degree, as unpopular as it has been for many of us. You need a little bit of social distancing from that which is unrighteous. The encouragement that God is saying is that if you allow this to keep going, it's going to propagate and it's going to spread, and you need to distance yourself from it. Again, Proverbs, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians says, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's not talking specifically of marriage, but it's, it's talking about intermingling your faith with that which is of the world. Deuteronomy 22 verse 10 said it earlier than 2 Corinthians, you shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. I mean, that's meant to be somewhat of a comical image. If you're going to go ahead and start farming land and you don't have the right tractors, you don't got a John Deere, you got a bull and you got a donkey and you take a yoke, and you put a bull on one side, and you put a donkey on the other, how's that going to go for you? Not only does it look ridiculous, at some point the donkey's going to be dragged, right? And this is what God is saying. He's saying, listen, if you yoke yourself with these things, if you allow yourself to, to intermingle with that which is sinful, there may be consequences to this. And there are. Look at verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. He asks the question, because of the fact that they're trying to make themselves right and holy, he now asks this question, how did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were 10, when one came to a wine vat, there were 50, and one when there were only 20? So let's just stop there for verse 16. Does this sound familiar for those of you who've been here for a few weeks? Remember in chapter 1? You ate, but you were not filled. You drank, but you were still thirsty. You tried to save money, and it fell through that, which would seem like were holes in your money bag. So essentially now what he's saying is, and if you look then at verse 17, he then says in verse 17, I struck you in all the products, all the products of your toil with blight, which is a hot desert wind that came off of the desert, And it struck all of their crops, killed all of their crops. And he's literally saying, your hands, that which you toiled with with your hands, how did it fare? Essentially, now what he's saying is you've tried to do this on your own. You're trying to build a temple on your own. You've tried to walk with me on your own. You're trying to do all the things that are related to faith on your own. And now the question is, how has that worked out for you? And the reality of it is is that the, the touch of their hands everything that they touched became unclean. That's what he says. Everything you touched became unclean. Even your tithes, he says, were unclean. This is not a seeker-sensitive message, right? You'll hear oftentimes, especially from pastors on TV, if you just tune in and you allow me to pray for you, they always talk like that. If you just send us your money, the Lord will bless you and he'll help out your family, but you got to give to the good Lord. Is the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying, if your heart is not a cheerful giver, if you're not giving to the Lord because you care about God and you care that the message would be propagated, if you don't care, don't give. But this is not a great message to preach. The tithes and offerings are going to be a little lower this morning. 
Don't give unless you know that it's to the Lord. But if you're giving, he's saying, if you're giving to try to get blessings from God, you don't get the gospel. If you're serving because you're trying to get something from God, you don't get the gospel. That's not something that most people want to preach, but that we can't manipulate you. This is what God says. And if I'm a loving, caring pastor and shepherd of your souls, I have to preach these things. Because if not, that sin will be contagious and it'll spread from congregant to congregant. And we've got a bunch of people who act good, live good, speak good, but inwardly they're dead. We don't want that. Again, holiness spreads differently than unholiness. Some of you might remember the Greek, the, the Greek mythological story of Midas. Do you remember Midas? And Midas asked that he would be able to have this special power that all he touched would turn to gold. That sounds amazing, by the way, doesn't it? Then you could afford your tank of gas. I saw one guy, he literally spilled some gas on the ground and he began to wipe it up and try to stick it into his tank. (laughs) I think he was just trying to be funny. I don't think he was serious. Everything he touched turned to gold. And eventually what occurred to him as he began to live what he thought was this great life, that even the food he touched turned to gold. And he then asked to unreceive that gift. And he had to go wash in a river that he would no longer have that particular gift. And like that Greek story, everything we touch, whether it's our offerings or whether it's our singing or our giving or our serving, is all worthless to the Lord. You cannot become clean by the work of your own hands. And he tells them there's lack of fruit. You go to gather and there's nothing for you to gather. I think one of the takeaways we have to ask this morning is this. Are there things in your life that seem hard and unfruitful and difficult? And is it possible that God is using those things to bring you back to himself? Now, I know that's not everything, right? Proverbs tells us that it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes bad things happen to us because we live in a fallen world, amen? I mean, sometimes that's it. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we have to do an inventory, which is again, again, in the text, he says it again. If you've been here for a few weeks, you've heard this word over and over again. Consider your ways. Give careful thought to your life. He's now saying you got to do an inventory, What needs to change? What sins do you need to get rid of? Because here's here's ultimately, even in the church, what we're guilty of. We want solutions to our pain and suffering. All of us do. No one likes pain and suffering. We want solutions to our pain and suffering, but rarely do we want solutions for the sin that causes that pain and suffering. I don't want to feel depressed anymore. Stop getting drunk. Well, I don't want to feel so anxious anymore. Start praying. Well, right, we have to get to a point where God's saying, listen, if you, if you really want to make things right, do the inventory and then the commandment, which is here in the text, return. There's an invitation here. Return to the Lord. Return to me. Hosea chapter uh, 5, do I have it on 6 here? Someone might have to look this up. I have it in my notes. It's, oh, I have it. I don't know why I said five. It's chapter six. Hosea chapter six, verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord. And then look at what he says in the text. For he's torn us apart, but he'll heal us. He's wounded us, but he'll bind up our wounds. He'll revive us after two days. Oh, here's the gospel. And on the third day, he'll rise us up so we can live where? In his presence. Let us then strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as dawn. Just as, just as Haggai is telling us, there's another advent coming. God is coming back, and he will come to us like rain, like spring showers that water the land. So let me ask the question, when was the last time you bathed? When was the last time you washed yourself in Christ? When was the last time you realized and recognized that no matter how much you come to church, you can't make things right with God? Right? God's not saying they shouldn't do the work because we should do the work. There is work to be done. 
We've talked about this the last few weeks as well. Don't grow weary in doing good. Do the work of an evangelist. We have work to do because God is worthy of that work and he's worthy of that worship because that's ultimately what true work is. It's worship. It's the motive behind the work. Now, what's beautiful here is we know the people have repented, right? They've, they've seen, they've heard. This is one of the, the primary messages of Haggai is to hear the word of God, to consider your ways, and then to repent of any action that is not holy, to get rid of anything that is unholy in your life so that it doesn't spread, so there's no contagion in your house, right? Just like we were for several months just sanitizing everything until they said, well, that doesn't do anything. And now we all have two years worth of sanitizer and a lot of toilet paper. So because they've done this, look now at what God says. It's the concluding matter in verse 19. This is harvest time. Remember last week we talked about what's literally happening in this season is, is the harvest of feasts. There's all of these feasts. This is the busiest time of the month for the Jewish calendar. They are in the, the, the midst of what is supposed to be celebratory, and they're seeing that their crops aren't quite what they should be, and that they're looking inside of the barn, and they're seeing that what they've gathered isn't as fruitful as what they thought it would be. Right? You put $100 in Bitcoin, and then all of a sudden you look back, and you only got 30 and you start going, what in the world? But then God says, okay, you've, you look. Look inside the barn, and don't just look at what's there. Don't look at the yield, but know this, because, because you've repented, because you've heard the message of God, because you've returned to me and you've heard the invitation to have a relationship with me, he goes, from this day forward now, I will bless you. I mean, I love how this is right near the end. It's, it's this tumultuous relationship with the people. The people have been encouraged to get to work and to build a temple so they can be in the presence of God and God's rebuking them and, he, and they're, they're responding and then they're, they're even in their response, the response isn't totally correct. Have you ever felt that way with God? Okay, God, I'm being obedient. Now I'm doing it and I'm not getting the fruit that I wanted. What are you doing? What's happening? How does this work? And then God's just saying, listen, if you, you do this and you have this right walk and you continue to strive after me and pursue me and to do the right thing for the right reasons, then I'm going to bless you. And one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament is out of Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And again, you have these religious people. I'll put it before you here. You've got the, the tombs that are whitewashed, and here they walk into this room, and what is Jesus doing? He's reclining in a house with tax collectors and sinners. You know, the word reclining literally basically means he was laid out upon them. Like his, his head, their head, however it is, is lied with on his, his bosom. They are like intimately sitting there in this room. And these are men that were known to be filthy, men that were known to be unholy, men that were known to be unrighteous, men that were known to be ungodly. And the Pharisees, because ultimately the religious right, when they don't really know Christ, are ultimately cowards. And they don't go to Jesus at first. They don't rebuke Jesus. What do they do? They go to his disciples and they ask the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He asked the disciples, but Jesus, because he's God, knows all things, hears it, and then he, I love it. He stands up. He's not afraid of the confrontation. He gets up in the room. Maybe not. Maybe he's sitting. We don't know. We know he heard it. He says it. And he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Then what does he say? Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Right? You could read this book of Haggai and go, look at these guys. They're a mess. You could read all of the Old Testament and look at the Jewish people. They're a mess. And you could look at your life and say, you're a mess. And you're the kind of people that Jesus wants to recline with at the table. Because he wants to take your unholiness and your unrighteousness and he wants to make it clean. And here's the ultimate New Testament emphasis of what is being said here. In the Old Testament, the work of their hands could not make them clean. But in the New Testament, the work of his hands can make you clean. 
What is our hope? What is our hope for healing? What is our hope for unrighteousness? How does one clean up their life? Only being touched by the presence of God. That is all the temple represents. It's not about the building. It's about the presence of God. And when, is, when one is in the presence of God, hears from the Lord and he speaks and he ministers, that person then becomes clean. Several verses encourage this. How about Matthew chapter 8, verse 3? Jesus reaches out to a leper, and immediately that leper is cleansed. You know how much of a massive deal this is? Lepers, lepers in Jesus' day, they were the most unclean thing. You, you could not touch them. They were sent out of the city. They couldn't live in the city. They had to live in their own camps. And literally, they were bound with much cloth. There were literally pieces of their body that would fall off. All of it was unclean. No one was to touch them. They were the outcasts. They were ostracized. Okay, the best way I can put this is remember month four, month four of COVID. Anybody walk on the Legacy Trail month four of COVID? And I used to do walks every single morning. I'd be walking on the trail, and sure enough, someone would see me 50 yards away. (laughs) I don't want to get unclean. It's that kind of equivalency. The fear of death and the fear of what would happen if you got near that person, that your body would be decayed. And not only would you be ostracized from your family and your community and everything that's important, all of your relationships, gone. This is social distancing at its max. Put them in another camp. Put them outside of the city. And Jesus walks to these individuals and he puts his hand upon them because he's the only thing that is so holy and so righteous and so clean and so pure that it radically transforms that human. And they're healed. In other places, you see that he's moved with compassion and he touches eyes and they begin to see I remember we were sharing that story earlier at the dinner table and someone said, the only way that I can describe it The only way that I can personally describe the gospel is like that man who was healed when he was blind. He was blind from birth and Jesus touched his eyes and he's brought before again those righteous men, those Sadducees and Pharisees and they want to know, how did you get, how did you see? What did you do? Tell us what happened. And the guy just goes, ah. His response, I once was blind and now I see. That's all I know. That's all he had for the gospel. I once was blind, but now I see. Why? Because the hands of Christ touched me. In other places, you can see one of the leaders comes before Jesus and his daughter has just died. And he says, please, would you just put your hand on her that she would live again? In other places, you see that people are squishing around Jesus just to touch the hem of his garment, that their uncleanliness of their bloodshed that they have wrestled with for years would go away. In other places, you would see in chapter 10, verse 16 of Mark, that Jesus would bring these little children into his arms and he would touch them and he would hold them and he would squeeze them and he would say, how dare any of you ever keep children from coming to me? Jesus was all about the embrace and all about the touch and all about the work of his hands. Jesus has the ability. He's the only one who has the ability to make you clean. It is not your hands. It is not your work. It is not your giving. It is nothing other than the work of Christ. We see this in other places. In John chapter 11, Jesus literally says, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you touch a dead body, you too will die. Again, you remember Jesus comes to the the grave of a man by the name of Lazarus. Do you remember? And even Lazarus' own sisters, he's about to go into the grave, and Lazarus' sisters say, Lord, he, he stinketh by now. That's the, the King James version of what has occurred after several days of death. Lord, don't go in there. He stinketh. What does Jesus do? Through the power of his holiness and his righteousness, he speaks and he tells Lazarus to come out to unwrap his clothes of death off of him, that he would then have new life. See, even this morning, Jesus has the ability through the weakness of my hands, through the weakness of my study, and the weakness of my preparation, and the weakness of who I am as a human being, to take my weakness, 
to unwrap grave clothes from around you. And this morning, he would call some of you out. He would give you that invitation, come out of the grave and be unwrapped from the uncleanliness that has marked your life and be clothed anew because of the work of Jesus Christ. Be bathed in his bloodshed and forgiven for eternity, for he is the resurrection and the life. Maybe some of you remember after John 11 and John 20, Jesus then breathes upon his disciples and he gives them the Holy Spirit. This is the power of God. How does this happen? It happens by the death of Jesus on the cross. The work of his hands, they're nailed to the tree. His feet are nailed to the tree. And in that process, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us exactly what happened when Christ, the Holy One without sin, was nailed to that tree. For our sake, it says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we call the doctrine of imputation. Literally what he is stating is that on that cross, Jesus became your defilement. Jesus became your sin. He took all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your misdeeds, all of the things you have ever done, all of the things that you are doing, and all of the things that you will do, and he has covered himself in unrighteousness that he would cover you in righteousness. That, my friends, is the gospel. Not that I can do anything in and of myself. And to think and to see my Savior dying there, blanketed in all my misdeeds, in all of my negative thoughts, in all of my hatred, in all of my lust, he has clothed himself in that so I can be clothed and seen by God as holy, pure, and unstained. My friends, do you see yourself through the eyes of Christ? And do you see this family of God through the eyes of Christ, reborn anew, washed in the blood of the Lamb, born again not of Adam's sin, but of the, the seed of Christ? that we would be a new creation, clothed white in purity, raised with Christ, and no longer hell-bound. We're no longer going there. This is why the Bible literally says, Paul says himself, death? Death? Where's your sting? Where's your sting? Only someone who knows the promises of Christ, only someone who's been bathed in Christ, knows that death is nothing. And with someone who's actually literally done memorial services for people who've known Jesus, and I've done many, and I've done memorial services for those who do know Jesus, the tone, the response, the contrast is just as clean and just as unclean as the scripture states here. In that place when someone has died and gone into eternity without the hope of Jesus, there's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of weeping with no hope. But for those who have died in Christ, they would say, as Paul, where's your sting? And there's a celebration and a lightness to those memorial services because we know one day we'll see him again. If you've ever lost a loved one and they know Jesus, it's not goodbye, it's see you soon. One of the last evenings, as I close with this last little illustration, one of my sons was just crying because he was pretty bummed out that he couldn't see his gramps because my, my father passed away when he was just a little baby. And we had a really beautiful moment as I got to hug my son and share with him, son, you've got to know Jesus because gramps right now, you don't need to mourn for gramps because gramps right now, he wouldn't come and see us if, if he really even really wanted to because he's enraptured with the love of God right now. He's, he's eating really good, and he's dancing, and he's celebrating. He's got a new body with no more pain. And one day we'll see Gramps again. We mourn 
but not without hope. Death is but a sting for us. And the encouragement out of almost the conclusion of Haggai, we got one more message. I'm going to squeeze one last drop out of this thing next week. Is that we would recognize that we do need to work with our hands, with our hearts, but never think that it's to earn anything from God because that work was finished when he breathed his last breath and he said, what? It is finished. It's done. Live fruitfully, frustratedly, and know that God is behind you. The work will be frustrating, and sometimes it is. Sometimes ministry is a grind. Sometimes parenting is a grind, and all the parents should say, Amen. (laughs) Work is a grind. Getting sober is a grind. Getting rid of bad habits is a grind. But never do it because you think you're going to earn something from God. Do it because he's given you everything, every gift from above. Every blessing from above is yours. Every promise in Christ is yours in Jesus. It's yours. Claim it. That's why you need to read the Bible. You can't claim a promise you don't know exists. Claim it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the work of your hands, which have accomplished the work of salvation, holiness, and righteousness. As we leave here, may we be encouraged that you have finished the building of the temple. It's in our hearts. And for those here, Lord, that are on the fringe, would they finally collapse in your hands? Would they right now in prayer admit they cannot do this on their own? And would they now today choose this day for salvation? and surrender themselves to you completely. Today is the day of salvation, and we rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Let's stand together as we worship with this last song, declaring that his mercy is more. It's more than our sin, it's more than our sorrow, and it's new for us every single morning. Praise the 